We're marking the 20th birthday of podcasting in conversation with Erica Heilman, a prize practitioner. Here we are, Erica, in Peachum, Vermont, settled 1776 in the Northeast Kingdom, up toward Canada. I seek you out because I feel you are the great artists emerging in this young medium. People speak of podcasting as radio on the internet, but it's really something else. It can feel like pen-palling with strangers, except that the human voice goes far and wide to the world, and your podcast, Rumble Strip, shows just how deep it can go. You get regular Vermonters talking, and then you listen and edit their voices with an almost religious attention and care. What strikes your listeners is the ring of truth, first and last, in your work. I want to hear about the art in it, the trick, if there is one. I think desperation, this sounds a little Pollyanna, but I believe it is true, which is that everybody I talk with knows something that if I knew it, I could get through my day better, that everybody is an expert in their own life. And so if if they could just impart their particular singular expertise, then I could figure out what's going on. And I think that makes it easy to listen because you're trying to figure out what it is somebody knows that you don't know. And that's children. And I mean, that's everybody. That's the motor. So it's basically selfish. It's a selfish pursuit that it's for me, that there's something I can glean that will help me get through my life a little easier. Credit yourself as the enabler, though the liberator of these voices. They do come out sounding experienced, confident, decided in their views, but sometimes as if they hadn't even, they'd never been asked about it before. Right. Well, that's when you know, I mean, in a conversation, when you arrive at a place with someone where you're both stumped, then you know you've arrived somewhere interesting. It's like there's, you've come to another country that we are talking, we're throwing a ball back and forth and back and forth, and then we drop it, and you don't know the question, and I don't know the answer, and then we're somewhere new. We're somewhere that no one's ever been before because it's you and me and this moment, and we are wondering what to do next. And that has a particular sound to it that's really interesting. And it's equal, (laughs) and it's equal, you know? Like, none of us knows. We all know how to be um, stumped. And so it's also a way that the listener gains access. Like when when you're talking to a scientist and you reach a place where the scientist says, "I I don't really know. That's something I'm wondering about or nervous about or that I'm afraid of. That is a great access point for a listener. What is it we love about podcasting? Your patience, to begin with, but it's an unlicensed medium, it's unhurried, it can be, it's built on the human voice, vox humana, Studs Turk would call it, that fabulous instrument, which it is, it's also independent, we mean it. Yeah. No boss, no structure, no corporation. That's what I was going to say, is that what I love about it is that there's no programming director standing at the gate There's nobody saying it's too long, it's too short, it's too grim, it's too profane, 
It's whatever you want it to be. I mean, that is what you and I do. There's lots of podcasts. I mean, podcasting has taken off and it has become made by committee, much of it now. But you and I still make podcasts independently and there are no rules. And what's beautiful about that is that inevitably it's broken and idiosyncratic and sort of uh, odd because it comes from one person, but it also has the potential to be transcendent then in a way that you couldn't anticipate with a group. You couldn't make something. It has a very distinctive sound, something that's made by one person than something that's made by a committee. And it has the potential to be transcendent. And it is always surprising. (laughs) You know? Yep. We think also it cannot be monopolized. No, I don't really follow the podcast news. I mean, I know that there are many big podcast houses that are collapsing. Um, You know, Pushkin just laid off, what, 20% of its staff last week? Yep. But, I mean, the listenership, the great listenership doesn't know that there's a profound difference between independently made podcasts and corporate. Corporate's a mean word to say, but, you know, podcasts made by paid staff. Those are very different animals. And I don't think that we as independent podcast producers have made that clear enough that we're just a different um, (laughs) animal entirely. Yeah. And this animal was not made to sell things or to be commercial particularly. No. Um, It's almost easy if you let it be, except for the hard part, which is making a living. Yeah. Not so good at that. If you're really aggressively downwardly mobile, it's a great, great business. (laughs) And I am. So it's been really good to me in that way. You found it. I can't quite believe that. Do you mean it? No, I'm not good at making money. I'm not good at it. So that is problematic, but it is not an easy way to make a living. I listen to your podcast all the time, Erica, and I want a lesson in listening. But how did you come to it? Up here in rural Vermont. Yeah. Almost Canada, we say. Almost Canada. Talking and listening to regular Vermonters. Well, I backed into it. I worked in television for a bunch of years in New York, documentary TV, which I loved, but it requires a lot of money and a lot of people to do that. And I was never interested in the business of television. And also I wanted to come home, which is I'm from here. So I got back here and wandered around and became a private investigator because a friend of mine who I actually worked in television with many years before. That has to contribute something to your voice, I think. The PI life? Interesting. Well, maybe I think it's all the same compulsion. I mean, when you're a private investigator, your job is to talk to people, to find people, to go from zero to a thousand with people. Um, But the trouble with that work is that you're collecting data or you're collecting, collecting stories to hand off to a defense attorney to build a case against somebody. So there was that. <laughs> That's very mm. different. So it was, they were not my stories to do anything with. So similar in that I always am looking for a, an excuse to knock on that door at the end of the road. Um, but yes, that's what came before. Um, and then podcasting, it was before serial. It was before the first serial. And people were knocking about in their you know bathrooms making shows in the very early days. A lot of it was super, super long conversation. But I thought the technology exists. I had made some radio stories before. And also, I had a son. And I knew that he would grow up watching me be disappointed in myself. 
and that that was intolerable and that I needed to I needed to start making things, making stories. It was a dogging me. It was, and so I thought, okay, well, I will start a podcast because I can, because nobody, you don't have to pay anybody to do it. Um, I was also pretty certain that no one would listen to it, and nobody did for years. Nobody listened. But I felt relief as soon as I mm. started, just because I knew that I was scratching that itch. And then, you know, years passed, and people started to listen a little bit and a little bit, and then people started to listen to podcasts. A lot of people in Vermont still don't know what a podcast is. They know who you are. I want listeners to hear the very distinctive sound of your work, Erica. Three examples. First, a young man named Ethan Perry. In your series of conversations about social class, you ask people, what class are you? Ethan's aspiration from a life of some hardship was to have his own pizza shop. But it turned out, as he spoke, the point wasn't the pizza. The point was a place where young people like him could gather and talk in his town, and there was no such thing. And he saw his generation, he got choked up about it, at risk. If you could describe your fantasy pizza shop, or if you could have exactly what you want, what would it look like? I just wanted to be a place where people could gather. And uh, a place where, like, people look forward to uh, to meeting and, you know, having, like, a sense of community there. I'm getting a little emotional, sorry. Why? I guess because I don't, I don't really talk to people about dreams or aspirations or anything like that very often. I don't even, like, let it seem uh, real to myself very often. Your your vision has to do with making a place where people can be together. There's nothing like that around here, really. You know, like, where do people go to gather? The all American Legion bar? It's sad. I look at the people that are my age in this area, and not necessarily people I know, but people that come into the store and I see around and stuff like that, and the number of them that are not doing well for themselves when it comes to drugs and stuff like that is really troubling. It's like... You want to say I expect better of my peers, but at the same time, there's nothing for them to do. And that stuff's easier to obtain than, you know, a legitimate good time. At your pizza place. (laughs) Hopefully someday. The classic Erica Hyman touch there was the way the question swerved. It wasn't about social class at all. It was about this town and a kind of desperation. We were sitting in my car up above... It's a mill town in Orleans, Vermont. And we were sitting up sort of overlooking the town. And I think that what was he was caught out by was never being asked what it was he wanted. Mm. And also, as you say, that there's a sort of desperation that in this circumstance where there's a town where there's nowhere to be to gather with people, um, there's no third place in in his town where people can talk and not be working and not be shopping and not be, you know, in the slipstream of their lives, but where they can kind of find each other communally. So it was both of those things, I think, in that moment that were striking to him. Speak of the woman, a police officer, talking about guns. It was a series of pieces that weren't pro or con, not about the politics of guns, but about the experience growing up. Right. Father had a gun, we went hunting 
this or that. One poor guy talked about trying to destroy himself with a gun and living through it. But the voice that caught me was that of a woman, a police officer, speaking of her, not just dread exactly, but her incredible focus and respect every time she pulled that weapon out of her holster. Yeah. You've never shot anybody, but you have um, held someone at gunpoint. And that, to me, is a profound thing. Um, It's a very serious thing. Like, I would never draw my weapon unless I was at the level where I might have to use it. Like, it would never be used as a a scare tactic. You know, it's, it's a very serious thing. If I'm pointing at my weapon at someone, I am one finger pull away from potentially taking their life. So it's a very serious thing. You are having a communication with somebody who is on the other side of a gun. Correct. You, so, it's heavy. It's heavy. You know, I you're you're giving commands and hoping, you know, that they're complying. And you're definitely give, you know, you're you're yelling. Usually you're yelling. It's a very excited moment. Oftentimes the F bomb is dropped, you know, get the F down drop your effing whatever hands drop you you know whatever it might be it's it's very tense um knowing what could happen anybody who says that there's no fear involved that that's a law enforcement officer in my opinion is lying like if you aren't afraid when you're when you have your weapon drawn and and you might have to use lethal force then i can't imagine having my weapon drawn and not being afraid of what what could happen next what was striking to me and what you're describing in the draw and what that entails and what it does is just the profound humility and perhaps surprising humility that she relates in that yeah, conversation seriousness. about what this costs to pull a weapon, to pull a gun on another human. And uh, the fast and incredibly slow moment that that is between two humans. The example of your work that won the Peabody Award, and that everybody knows or ought to know, was Finn and the Bell about a beautiful 16-year-old kid, student body president, baseball player, charmed life, who killed himself at age 17. There was no accounting for it, and nobody even tried, really. But his mother gave you the most extraordinary account of her devotion to him and his to her and to the whole family and community. But it ended with a speech that sounded, I don't know, Shakespearean almost. She imagines him every day and he is still speaking to his world. It can only be called a resurrection story, almost spontaneously from her lips. <laughs> it kind of was like me fitting God. I'd say that's best way I've ever described it. It was like infinite compassion for like every single person that had ever lived, like including me and and, and including Finn for doing this. I, I remember saying out loud, oh, like I understood for for just a second there, like, why we were alive. And it felt like it was for each other. It was one of the most remarkable conversations I've had, ever. 
And that was our first interview. That was before we even knew we were making a story. I mean, it was a very hard conversation. And part of me was saying, what am I doing having this conversation? It was so fresh and the pain was so raw. But when she talked about what happened to her in that moment that you're describing, I mean, I just felt all the hair on my neck stand up. And what was beautiful to me about it was that she she was reticent. She was nervous to even say this because she wasn't sure if it seemed appropriate that she was having these feelings directly after Finn's death. And I thought that was so striking because it was such a beautiful thing that happened to her. Um, but I understood because there was also great profound love that she experienced in that moment. Mm. And that seemed to her counterintuitive, but it was also so deeply, exactly right. Absolutely. Where do we place that on the, on the long shelf of art, including painting and music and fiction and poetry? Spontaneous conversation at a level of transcendence. I don't know. So many of your pieces suggest Chekhov to me, these small tales of rather ordinary, in his case, grayish people, but they're touching before you're done. Or, you know, Alice Munro, who writes about rural Ontario? Yeah, yeah. Or, or Edna O'Brien, the Irish writer. You're composing something that I can only compare to famous art. I wonder how you account for it, stumbling into this beauty. I guess I would say shucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've never been able to use that word. Art. Yeah. I struggle with that word. I don't come from a family of artists, mm -hmm. and so maybe that's it. I don't, although when I think about the, the arc of making something and how about 80% of it is profound confusion and uh, suffering, I guess that's what I grew up hearing art was like when you made it, and I certainly feel that. <laughs> um, the art and the imagination comes in, I think, basically in not interrupting Finn's mother. How could I possibly have interrupted her then? I mean, what could I have? It was such a hush. So there are words that are happening when we're talking with each other now. And then there's dynamic that's happening between us. And mm. the dynamic that's happening between us is every much in evidence as the words that we're saying, including the silence that happens between us. That's as mm. heavy, as momentous, as important, as filled with meaning as the content. So no, no transcript could ever do justice to what this conversation Absolutely. is. And so when she is in a, what I have to describe as a reverie or a, um, she was channeling something profound yes. in the moment that she was describing, but also in the room as she was describing it to me. So there was no interrupting to be done. What could I have said? I was drinking Diet Coke and listening, and there was no time. I mean, that was a, mm, that was mm, a, mm. a profound moment between two people. She names something without naming it to me. And again, the, the word love is so hard. It's such a 
used mawkishly so often, but I can only say that if there were a definition of God, for me, it would be um, love. And she captures it in that moment. Um, So true. But the the love word is critically important. Love is the all-important secret that Tara Reese divulged to you about Finn. Yes. Yeah. That was the hardest show I've ever made. I wanted to disappear so that I wouldn't have to do it. That's how I felt. (laughs) I mean, I think I recorded for eight months for that (sighs) show. And then I was in a room with tiny little pieces of paper taped everywhere with little pieces of dialogue. And I think I stared at it for two weeks without weeping Mm. before I started. I had no idea what to do with this tape. The thing that was so striking to me that I didn't know until I was editing was that I had so many people, so many interviews with so many people who had been generous enough to talk with me about something they didn't want to talk with me about um, because it was still very painful. It was a very personal, private affair that I was not on the inside of. And they talked with me anyway. And they, they said over and over in one way or another, he was a remarkable person. Finn was an amazing kid. And I didn't know until I was editing that that was meaningless for the story, that I couldn't hmm. make a story out of people saying that he was amazing because nobody who's going to hear the story knew him. So it doesn't matter. And so finally, it was about it was the ephemera, the details, the minutia of his life, if composed in the right way, could capture him. Mm. But nothing directly said about him. So it was about the way that he might pick flowers for a table before dinner. Or the way he, he liked put, a well-set table. He liked a well-set table. And the way that he would buff up his new cleats and put them back in the box between games. These were what was so beautiful about him, but it wasn't anyone expressing their love for him or... He would leave little notes for his mom, though, in, in the, the woodpile wood or any place. Hi, mom. I love you. Yeah. Yeah. It's still... Yeah. Mm. It still rocks me that I'll never get to meet him. So mm. somebody said, you know, was that a good idea to make that story? Like, was that... And the answer is probably no. Um, I mean, I have a son who's his age, and so it was it was a hard show to make, but the hardest part was just how weirdly part of me he mm. became in the making of that show, but that I will never get to meet him. is Just still, I can't mm. quite believe it. And I guess that's one millionth of what Tara must feel every day, you know, Mm. just the fresh horror of his absence. It was very complicated for the two of us, Tara and me, and complicated for her in ways that she couldn't have anticipated. Having her story externalized in that way was, was cathartic and very hard. Yeah. Mm. And continues to be. But surely it was a leap into the realm of Art as mystery, as discovery, as revelation, as unexpected. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that she knew, too, that this was something that together we, I hope, had made something that was more than the sum of its parts and Mm -hmm. that was bigger than Finn in the way that Finn was bigger than Finn. 
Mm. I listened to all your work, Erica, wondering what are people seeing, hearing in that voice of yours? Insistent, curious, open. Neurotic. <laughs> well, that's to you to know. Um, who is Erica Heilman in this work? Investigator, I say enabler, liberator. There's selfishness at the heart of it. I want to figure out what's going on. Hmm. And everybody has a little piece of the answer. And if we could bounce them all against each other, we might understand what's going on a little bit better. I think that's the motor somehow. Or I think that's what I believe. Um, yeah, it feels to me like the bomb that the country so terribly needs. Careful listening and a confidence in conversation that I think is at risk now. But I agree with that. I think it's desperately needed. And it's not just listening. It's listening with curiosity, yep. humility, and a sense of humor. Like those three things could save us, I think, from ourselves. If we could approach other people with the operating instructions are, how, how did you get there? How do you how did you get here now? Like, how did that happen? And listen without judgment, that you just are trying to tease back the story of how you arrived. Because there's, there's a reason why you are the way you are, that you believe what you believe. It isn't to say that I'm going to come to agreement with you about why you believe what you believe, but there is substance, there's utility in at least understanding it. And my interest will be evident enough to you that the connection is made. There is utility in that. No, I think you've hit on the grand scope of your work and the way the society needs it, all of us, everywhere. But let's focus on your plot, Vermont. Vermont's a curious place. It doesn't have an accent like New Hampshire. It has an attitude, but it's very subtle. It has famous people like George Aiken, the Republican senator in my youth, who I think named the Northeast Kingdom, but he also, in the depths of the struggle in Vietnam, said, we should declare victory and come home. And it resounded. But also, famous people like Governor Dean, from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, he said, a very good candidate, till he was destroyed by media and sound editing and Newsweek covers and this kind of thing. Um, who are these Vermonters? So like us... And so unlike us, sometimes I think the whole state is, is advertising MAVA instead of MAGA, make America Vermont again. <laughs> well, yeah, that's funny. I mean, I can become saccharine. I have my deep troubles with this place in the way that one would in a marriage, I guess. I've never been married, but I imagine you live with what you dislike intensely. Um, there are things I don't like. My current theory is that a place that has a town meeting culture, the town meeting culture is part of what makes this place what it is. And that is that you have to deal with each other on a local level in order to proceed. You have to get in rooms mm -hmm. together in person, disagree civilly in order to make decisions about what size gravel you want to use on the roads. You've podcasted about town meetings. The problem is we're not selling enough bags. 
In Vermont, town meeting is the first Tuesday in March. Everyone looks pretty bad after a long winter. Everyone's coat is covered in road salt. A lot of people seem to be sick of their spouses. Some people bring their knitting. They sit on bleachers in the school gym or in the town hall. And the select board, which are elected townspeople, they're sort of like the town's executive branch. They're usually sitting behind a table at the front of the room. To me, that um, command performance is an essential ingredient in this place and what it's like. In other words, a town is somewhere. This town, where I live in Callis, is very different from Marshfield, which is the town next door. It's very (laughs) different. I'm from Callis. I'm not from Marshfield. That's important to me. Uh, now, if you strip away the local schools, which is what we're doing, and if you if you throw away town meeting and go to Australian ballot, which is what we're doing, then I'm just a house on the side of the road. And that's not where I want to live. But that's, I fear that we are running on fumes in this state. Hmm. But I think that this ability to agree to disagree, to be friends across cultural boundaries, is in part the result of a town meeting culture. And, you know, a history of making your own fun. Right now, Tara Reese, actually, mother of Finn and Rose Friedman in Hardwick, have started something called the Civic Standard. And its only purpose is to get people in rooms together to recreate all of the parades and the town goings on. That's all volunteer run. Mm. And the volunteerism is fading in our state. And so the goal of the Civic Standard is to find reasons to get people to stand around and kick dirt together, to have many unimportant conversations so that maybe we're ready for important conversations when Mm. the time comes. In other words, you cannot figure out what we're going to do when the flood comes if you haven't also, you know, had gone to an occasional uh, pie supper. Pie suppers are very important. Um, exchanges in a grocery store with somebody who is utterly unlike yourself can make your whole day. It's very important. We're just not seeing how critical this, the grease that is social capital is. That rhymes with the general notion, the hope out there, some people feel, that local politics could save us, that local newspapers, journalism, maybe yeah. even podcasts could save us. Do you believe that? I, I don't think anything's going to save us. I don't feel hopeful right now. But I do think I can help my place where I live. Help is the wrong word. I would like to participate in a solution. The only solution I can see is to work where I live. And Mm. if if somehow the podcast that I make or the, the, the work that the Civic Standard does, if that shines out and other people become interested in doing that where they live, yeah, I think that could be a solution. I just feel that it's all happening very fast, that the dissolution of goodwill and of curiosity about people unlike Mm. ourselves is we are so siloed. I see that the odds are not in our favor, but it's really fun. It's really fun to um, hand out popsicles on the first day of school. And to me, there's great utility in doing that. The civic experiment has got to satisfy you and please you, thrill you before it's going to travel. It could be everywhere. I, my hope I is think that so the too. civic standard is a blueprint for everywhere. Um, but it requires, here's the thing, it is much subtler than it sounds. <laughs> the other night we had karaoke at the Legion in Hardwick, and I was watching Tara and Rose, you know, 
the Legion is a place that's open to vets, um, but in the last few months, the Civic Standard has been doing collaborations with the Legion. And so all these people from town are gathering together in this one room to sing Pat Benatar. And the way that even that the DJ was selecting music was something that Rose and Tara were listening to. Like, we need this next, or we need that next, or what about this, or what about that? It's very um, active. It's a social science project that requires a great sense of humor, openness, and zero um, patronizing attitude. And there's a pitch to it. In the broke-down headquarters of the Civic Standard, which is an old newspaper business, the, the Gazette, the Hardwick Gazette, we were approached by, you know, in the very beginning, there were all kinds of entities coming, organizations, the school, various interest groups coming to say, to sort of feel us out, whose side are you on? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, that's not the right question. Um, there won't be a flag. There won't be a Black Lives Matter flag. There won't be a an American flag. But there might be a big sign that says, congratulations on the new baby, Sue and Jimmy. And to me, that's the, that's the sign. It's like it's, we can all get behind that, mm. you know? As you speak, we come to podcasting from very different directions. I covered politics for print, Boston mayor's races, the Massachusetts State House, Ronald Reagan's campaign for president, George McGovern's, um, came to radio, and here we are in podcasting. You from local life and a kind of very personal curiosity about people, um, we were both entirely alienated from what has become of our politics, political language. It's all fake, virtually every word of it, um, and contrived. What is it we like about podcasting as a refuge? Well, let me prompt you with a question then. Part of this conversation that we're having is about the beginnings of this medium that we both work in, and you are the beginning. So can you tell the story of the beginning of podcasting? Sure, I remember it well. There we were at the Berkman Center at Harvard trying to figure out the internet, and in comes Dave Weiner, a programming genius, who said, what the world needs is an MP3 file, a sound file that can be syndicated for the web. You know radio, I know programming, let's work on it. And we did for two or three months, and he said, I think we have it. I said, what do we do now, Dave? He said, well, that's obvious. You're going to interview me. And strangely enough, this was June of 2003. The Iraq war was driving me nuts and George W. Bush. And the first conversation we had was about why are we at war again? Um, and where are the people? And why is the media including Dan Rather and the New York Times, gung-ho for, for the, a disaster underway. And that was the beginning, and it stands up very well for the authenticity of our curiosity. What in the world is going on here? Okay, I want to ask you the rude political question, which, which has to do with the Bush administration and the, and the war in Iraq. It seems to me we've never had less debate, less dissent, more confusion, uh, more general mass deception about what we were getting into than we've had in the last six months or a year since 9-11. It has not been an explosive period of expression, comment, criticism, investigation, democracy, in short. Uh, what's missing? Good question. One would think that all we needed was the mechanism to enable that, but it sure didn't seem to happen. Uh, you know, the hope is that at some point, 
uh, not only will the technology be there, but the human spirit will be there as well to get that information into our hands. There are some areas where having the publishing technology in the hands of the people has met, made a difference, but you know, for the large part, on things like that, people still, uh, you know, where clock is turning backwards in that area at this point. How was that distinctive from everything else that was happening? What was the ingredient about this form that you were finding that was that made it special? That it was independent, there was no cost barrier to right. entry, and that people could speak their own voice. And the voice has a magic of its own. It tells you whether it's, it's lying or not. Right. So it's radio unleashed. It was radio exactly. minus minus the rules. It was FCC free radio. Amen. Amen, brother. And because you're not working on a clock or you're not, you know, because you've got all you've got is tape to burn, people started to play with format. Right. You know, why not make something that is part satire, part musical? Part um, sermon, you, part you know? interview. And then, strangely enough, ordinary people would say, hey, I heard your podcast. How the hell did you stumble on that? Well, more and more people did, and more and more people discovered they could do it, too. Right. Yeah, it's free. 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 It's not free. Right. It's not always free, and it is also time-intensive to make. So the free part has been problematic, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I wish that there were better ways to monetize, but I also would never charge listeners to listen to it. You know, there it is. 20 years down the road, Erica, I hear in your podcast and others, sometimes in my own, a kind of clarity, simplicity, directness that I think actually is good for all of our mental health. Uh, and I don't hear it on the radio much, never on television, and very little in the newspapers too. I hear, I, I hear a sort of green grass coming up of public awareness, as you say, as you keep discovering, we're smarter than we think we are. People do get it. I think there's a certain therapeutic touch for the people who do it and hear it, but also a way for the country to find its voice again. My fantasy, I think, would be for, well, I mean, ultra fantasy. Every town in every state has a podcast that's telling its own stories hyper, hyper local. I mean, I would listen. I'd listen to Topeka podcast about what happened to Joe living on Smith Street. I'd be fascinated. I would love there to be the hyper local podcasts about just what the day consists of all over the country. I'd love that. And as you say, part of it is the sound of life in another place that's utterly compelling. I mean, the way that Main Street in, you know, Pittsford, Mass sounds very different from the way Main Street sounds in Pittsford, Vermont. And I am interested in both. I mean, there's good tape and there's bad tape. There's boring stories and there's good stories. But to have people working hard to make great stories in small places about unimportant things is a dream to me. There's all this life that happens between the important parts, between the birthdays and the death dates and the graduations. There's all the living that happens, which is most of us and most of the time. That's mm. the stuff I'm interested in. Public radio and media doesn't have a lot of time for the uneventful moments of living but they can be artfully told. 
and mm. um, they can be profoundly interesting, the unimportant parts of our living. That's a brilliant program, Erica, that you just outlined to open the American conversation. Erica Hammer, you've discovered so much, and I feel you're just beginning. And you're a teacher. You're a teacher to radio practitioners like me, but you're teaching us all something bigger, which is stop and listen. Get over yourself. Discover the joy of, of your neighbors, the reality, and hearing them <laughs> feed it back or something. Let me think about how to say to respond to that. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Erica Hyman, thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm being interviewed by a, one of my radio heroes. It's really, it's really an honor. Special thanks to the Peachum Public Library staff who let us record among their books. You can hear Erica Heilman's podcast on her website, rumblestripvermont.com. Erica is a member, as we are at Open Source, of Hub & Spoke, a collective of independent, creator-owned podcasts. Find them at hubspokeaudio.org and celebrate the 20th anniversary of podcasting by tuning into some of your favorites. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>